You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. We are joined on the Leaders and Legends podcast today by two-time Indianapolis 500 champion, Al Unzer Jr., Al, thank you so much for your time. It's very kind. Thanks for having us. Well, we're sitting here at the greatest sporting venue in the world, one that I know has to mean so much to you just as soon as you walk through the doors. We want to chat all about your career and especially here at Indy, but I want to ask you first, do you remember the first time you came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and what it was like? that feeling of course i do of course i do i was uh 11 years old uh 1973 um it was uh, uh that was my first race and uh, it wasn't a very good year for for the 573 because there was a lot of rain a lot of rained out days and a lot of uh, crashes and so on people getting hurt that that year but uh but yeah it was um uh, uh, it was just when we, when we pulled down 16th street there and I saw the grandstands on the outside for the first time, they were just, they were just so big, just so huge. And, and, uh, and then, you know, coming in with, with dad and all that, it was just, uh, it was super special. Had you visited other tracks with him? So you had a frame of reference. Like, oh, this yeah. track looks like this, but compared to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, my sisters and I used to uh, travel with dad during the summers of of, of all the, the IndyCar season. And so we had been to several different racetracks prior to, uh, to coming to Indy. And so, yeah. By 1973, your father had won twice, 70 mm-hmm. and 71. Did you understand, did you know my daddy's famous, but he's especially famous here? Well, being that young, you know, I knew, I knew dad was famous, okay, and, uh, and that sort of thing. You know, super famous or anything, I, no, I, I, he was dad to us, you know, and so uh, uh, we still got in trouble and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So, so um, you know. It was, it was, I guess it was later on that, that, that summer that, um, um, a little girl came up and, and asked dad for his autograph and my sisters and I kind of, kind of giggled, you know, why would you want dads? You know, we kind of giggled and, and when the, the girl, the little girl walked away, dad, dad scolded us for doing that. He goes, don't you ever, really? you know, oh yeah, he was, he, he got upset with us. And so, uh, cause you giggled but, cause you yeah. said, what do you? Yeah, yeah, because we just, you know, he's dad. He's our dad. He's not, you know, anything special and but he was. So. So when was he ever in your presence when someone asked you for your autograph and he said, "Why the hell would you want my son's autograph?" <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, that was that was when we were kids. We we didn't understand, you know, and and so uh no, by the time I grew up and so on, no, dad dad and I we we understood that plain and simple without the race fan we wouldn't have a job and that's mm. that's pretty much why he he did to us what he us kids you know and so uh it's a very special thing to to have a fan come up and ask you for your autograph it's special 
Did you get the sense that fans were closer to the drivers then than when you were at your peak and racing, whether there was, there was more familiarity or was there less? No, it was the same. You know, um, I think that, that, that race fans love racing and, you know, the the drivers' names, they change and the, and the, the, the technology of the automobiles change. But the love for the sport never does change, and so um, no, the 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 fan is 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 extremely special in in our industry. That's a great point because it's not like basketball or hockey where you, a team can come to a city three or four times a year, or football where you know the Jets are going to play in New England every year. It's just a matter of when. These fans have to travel. In a lot of cases, it's it's a significant expense and dedication of their time. Do you think that's one of the reasons that makes them so special to the drivers and to the industry? Um, maybe you know uh, the Indy Five Hundred only runs once a year, you know, and and so uh, uh, it's it's extremely special that the Five Hundred is is kind of its own entity, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And and but um, in IndyCar racing, I mean, you know, we travel all over the country and and yeah there's only one long beach grand prix a year there's only one phoenix uh, oval a year and and that sort of thing and so um yeah it's uh it's something that uh, uh you know that the, the fan has to dedicate themselves to it and so on is there a particular without naming names or whatever, but group of fans, you'd be like, didn't I just see you in Indy and now it's two months later and we're in Michigan or Pocono or Phoenix? There's and a there following. I see you. <laughs> there's a following. Yeah. Yeah. There's a following, which is, which is great. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's good to see that, uh, that, that there are dedicated fans that, that will travel and, and go to all the races. When you were, I think you said 11 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you came here the first time, had you already, resolved or wished I want to do what my dad does. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It uh when my dad won the the 500 for the first time in 1970 um at that time it was shown my sisters and I were in Albuquerque and it was closed circuit TV. So you we went to the Civic Auditorium in in Albuquerque really? and it was closed circuit and it was big screen and we were sitting up front and uh and the Johnny Lightning car, I fell in love with it, you know, blue, and blue? It, it blue with yeah. with yellow lightnings, and and uh, and I was eight years old, and uh, and I had a Johnny Lightning set at home, <laughs> and uh, and so um, yeah, that's when I fell in love with with uh, with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indy Five Hundred, and that's when the dream started. You mentioned your sisters. How were they involved? How were they a part of the racing enthusiasm in their blood, or or just? As yeah, fans? my my older sister, uh, Mary Linda. She, you know, she was uh, she wasn't really into the racing. You know, she she knew what Dad did and that sort of thing. My middle sister Debbie, she was more of a tomboy. And so <laughs> right at that time, I started racing go-karts there at, at, in Albuquerque at home. And within a couple years later, my sister Debbie, she wanted to race the go-kart. And so dad got her one. And, and so we were going up there together racing. So, uh, yeah. 
did you get nervous, scared? I mean, you, you, you either saw the crashes or read about the crashes and you thought, man, that could be my dad. Never thought about dad, you know, or in, my uncle. in, in, I mean, or in that say. way or Uncle Bobby. You know, when, when, when I was that young, I liked to go to the races to see the crashes. Okay, makes not, perfect sense. Not knowing anybody's going to get hurt or anything like that, but I want to see him crash. You know, people of our age, we didn't want to see Evil Knievel make the jump. Right, we, we wanted, wanted to, to see, see him, him hit crash. that bus That's at the right. end. That's right. So, so you know, at that age, you know, I I, I went to see the crashes, but then um, it wasn't until I started driving real race cars professionally that. Uh, that the danger factor even entered into my head, you know, even in the go-kart, you're not going to get hurt. I never even thought about that. So did your, did your dad or your uncle, and I want to ask you about your uncle who just passed just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, did they talk to you about that aspect of it? Like it's a lot of fun and it's exhilarating and you can be successful and, and make some money and be popular, but there's always this dark kind of, angel on your shoulder you just never know yeah no it really wasn't discussed other than you know uh it's there okay and you put your helmet on you put your fire suit on you you do what you can to make it as safe as possible and then the most important thing is when you go out there and drive that you use your head you think you know, you, you be smart about it. Don't don't be doing anything stupid like mm. driving over your head and driving a car that's real loose or or something like that. If if there's if the car's not handling right, bring it in the pits and make changes to it so that it does handle right. And so um, you do that, then you'll get quicker and quicker and quicker, and then you'll have success by making your car handle good. Can the speed be intoxicating in the sense that you're you're always wanting to go faster? So what do I need to do? You just mentioned about taking it back to the pits, but is, is the quest for speed something that you have to be mindful of from a safety standpoint? Well, yes, you do. Okay. Uh, when I first started, my, my rookie year at Indianapolis was 1983. Uh, the cars were built out of aluminum honeycomb. Um, if you had any kind of frontal impact with, uh, with the car on the, on the walls at Indy, you, you were, your legs are going to be crushed, you know, at the very mm-hmm. minimum if you do survive. So um, as the years went on, uh, the technology of safety started getting better and better and better. And so kind of how how i saw it was that in the early 80s the late 70s and early 80s there was really an imbalance in the safety technology and the speed technology okay so the cars were going faster than the the safety technology of it and so when i came in as a rookie you know we were running over 200 miles an hour here at indy and the cars were aluminum honeycomb. I mean, they were they they, they were a tin can at best. Okay, and so for speed purposes, I'm and guessing, so or aerodynamic purposes, yeah, it, just just flat speed purposes, and and so you really concentrated. You spent uh, a lot of time 
staying in control of your car. Okay, just just that simple. As the technology increased, there was there was a balancing that that did happen with the with the safety technology. The cars with uh, uh, started being made out of out of carbon fiber. Um, they started to have breakaway lines that, that were installed. If, if the, the engine separates from the fuel tank, there's no fuel going anywhere. Uh, fuel bladders that, that are puncture-proof. Um, all these sort of things that, that came into it um, that truly balanced out the safety technology like today. I really feel the safety technology is in balance with mm. – the speed technology, so they're 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 really quite safe, but there is, you know, the ugly side of our business, how I say it, you know, and and uh, and you never know what's going to happen, but but at least today they're 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 a lot safer than they were, you know, especially in the mid seventies when it, when it was, oh. was it was really. You really. mentioned fire, mm-hmm. and what was it? Was it sixty six? 68 where there was the crash at the very beginning and Foyt climbs 66, over the 66 yeah there's yeah 66 67 i mean there was some there was some real bad fires back in the day i mean um the Sachs mcdonald you know, crash in 64 y- yeah really bad. yeah and then you know the really the first answer my uncle jerry mm-hmm. was the first answer here at, at indianapolis and and that was in 1958 he 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 crashed on the opening lap. Okay, went out, went hit the wall in turn three, and went over the wall and out. Mm-hmm. But but he survived. Right. Okay, he didn't get injured, but he came back in '59, and during practice, he rolled the car down the front straightaway, got severely burned really bad, and then within three months, he died of pneumonia from the burns. Yeah. And so that's when they wore T-shirts, leather helmets. You know, I mean, just, just, it, so they just didn't know. Okay. I mean, would have I have driven race cars at that time? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. Would I have been in a t shirt? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just what you did back then. And, and so, uh, but it's come a long way. Yeah. You mentioned your uncle, Jerry. So let me ask you about your uncle, Bobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, a three time winner mm-hmm. of the Indianapolis 500, passed away earlier in 2021. Uh, what was your relationship like with him and and how how did you understand and and revel in the uniqueness of having a father and an uncle who were among the greatest racers of all time well quite simply put i was i i'm super blessed to be born where i was born you know with with dad and uncle bobby and then I was blessed with the love of, of, of racing, you know, and, and, and went ahead and followed in my dad's footsteps and my uncle's footsteps. And, and you know, uh, Uncle Bobby was a very uh, outspoken person, okay? He had uh, great interviews, man. Very, very opinionated <laughs> and that sort of thing. And that didn't stop on the interview. That, that carried <laughs> at home when you go snowmobiling or or hunting or anything like that uncle bobby was definitely the leader of of the family and that and that kind of thing and so um with uncle bobby i was again i was truly blessed with the knowledge that he had and the way that he attacked racing Mm -hmm. and then having my father and the way that he attacked racing 
basically Uncle Bobby, his 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 fundamental ideas was if I if I'm gonna fall out of the race, I want to be leading it. Okay, I want to lead the first lap. I want to lead every lap. Back in that day, uh, mechanical failures were huge right. with the Indy cars. Okay, so so they they broke down more often than they finished. Okay, where my dad's was exactly the opposite. My dad wanted to lead the last lap. Okay, and so if it was easy to lead, he'd lead, but he wouldn't put it all out there during qualifying or, or the the first half of the race. It was the second. So so what I tried to do was take um, the best of both and try to apply it to my racing. And, and you know, that's pretty much what I did. I, I, I wasn't a, a, a really successful qualifier. I think I've only got eight poles in my whole career. <laughs> okay. But – um, you know, I wanted to sit on the first three rows. If I sat on the first three rows of any race, I had a shot at winning it. And so that's kind of how I looked at it during practice. I was always uh, thinking about not just sheer speed, but but how do I make my car comfortable to have the best average speed over a long distance, over, over the, the entire race? You know, Indy, Pocono... And Michigan were the 500-mile races. All the rest of them were 200-mile races. And so I – and there were road courses in there and that sort of thing. And so I would just – all during practice, it was just about making the car comfortable and and being able to adapt to different weather conditions and that sort of thing What what in order to win the race. that That's what I was there to do, not be the fastest guy but win the race. Did you witness – a sibling rivalry. Uh, my brother still remembers, you know, when he beat me in Monopoly during the Carter administration. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I can only imagine if there was, or was there, I should say, a bit of trash talk between Uncle Bobby and your dad, where Bobby wins in '68, then three years later, your dad's got two. And so, did they go back and forth a little bit? Absolutely. They were super competitive. Super competitive. I mean. Uh, the snowmobile races that we used to have during the wintertime oh. were outrageous. You know, the money that was spent and the hours of working on the machines. And and um, I grew up with that, watching my dad and Uncle Bobby go at it like that. Mm-hmm. And so when I came along, it it really became racing against dad. So So I had a race with my dad almost every year in the snowmobiles okay and we, mm-hmm. we we ended up naming it the runway classic i made a trophy for it <laughs> and I, we had all kinds of rules that that we would break all the time i mean you know there there was a time there that that uh that I put a nitrous bottle in the seat of my snowmobile so that it was hidden. <laughs> and so in order to... There was to, no chief steward? No, no, there was no chief steward. So, uh, but no, if they were... Uncle Bobby and Dad were, were competitive at everything they did. So, yeah, that rivalry was was right there in the Unser family. Yeah. You came up through the midgets and sprint cars, almost a traditional track, much... Uh, like previous generations, you know, you read about whether it's Vukovic or Foyd or or 
your uncle, your mm-hmm. dad, and they kind of like that you had to pay your dues in this style car, then you paid your dues in the dirt tracks and that sort of thing. Do you think that helped you? Did you enjoy that sort of like, yeah, I'm not going to say double A AA or triple A because I don't want to denigrate it, but clearly it's different than racing in a super speedway. Was that helpful to you? Did you have fun? I loved the sprint car. I loved the sprint car. I was, I went from the go-kart. I started racing when I was nine till I was 16. And then I was old enough to get into a sprint car at 16. So I drove a sprint car uh, for three years, 16, 17, 18. And then I got in a Super V, which is today's uh, Indy Lights, mm-hmm. let's say. And then in uh, 1982, I did a Can-Am season. And then in 1983, I got to Indy cars. And, and so the latter really presented itself that way to me and and – you know, with dad's blessing and all that, I mean, he really helped. And the fortunate thing that that I was able to do was, was when I made the jump from go-kart to sprint car, I was able to adapt to it. And the sprint car became something that, that I enjoyed driving and I had success. And then when I went from the sprint car to the Super V, I enjoyed that, that step going from the dirt ovals to road courses and 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 asphalt ovals you know and then uh and then the can-am car was it was a, a horsepower jump also from the super v and that was strictly road courses which at that time the majority of the indycar races were on road courses mm-hmm. okay so um so at each level, each jump, I was able to absorb it and accept it and, and have success doing it. And I think that's why I was able to do it so quickly, you know, uh, as far as the latter. But um, I remember the sprint car at 16, 17, and 18. I took it so serious. You know, I was just – it was just serious because they are serious race cars, okay? And – then I got to Indianapolis and I ran my first my first laps at Indy and they're 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 two hundred miles an hour going down the straightaways and I went, Okay, this is serious. <laughs> <laughs> this is serious. I, I I had a lot of fun driving the, the sprint car, but this is serious stuff. Eighty three was your first race here. Yeah. What made you believe you were ready for that race? Um just the sheer fact that uh, uh, we were able to, again, go from the Super V to the Can-Am car. And then in 1982, at the end of the season, I ran my first IndyCar race at Riverside, California with the Forsyth race team. And uh, and I qualified 10th and, and uh, ended up finishing 5th. You know, it was... Uh, it was something that I could do, I, you know, and, and I remember my dad actually, I was sitting right next to my race car on the on the pit wall, and I'm looking at, at the, the Indy car, I've never driven it, you know, and I'm just kind of like, and dad came up and sat next to me, and he, he, he could tell I was a little nervous, you know, and, and he goes, it's just a race car, it's all it is, it's just a race car, so go out and drive it as such, it's nothing different. Nothing special is what he was saying, and, and, I, and those words, I, I, I think he saw me breathe <laughs> because that's that's was the calming effect that it had on me, and I just settled right down and went out and did my thing. I've never met your father. I've read a lot about him. Uh, he seems to be a fellow who would say 
you pay your dues mm-hmm. and you take your time right. and you and you earn your own living. That's right. Did you get the sense coming up that people were like, hey, that's Al Hunter's kid or that's Al Hunter's kid? Um, there was there was again, I was blessed to be born where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things did come to me a little bit quicker than than others, but only because dad and uncle Bobby were so successful in in the industry. And then when I went out and drove, I I would win. I I was fast. I it was it was it was real natural to me. And and so um, with that, then I was able to grab the attentions of the of the car owners and sponsors by my results that I went out and did. And so, um, you know, I think that's how it it ramped up so quick but but again you know i really think that uh, that that michael andretti and myself mm-hmm. really were very fortunate and blessed to be born and and then also to have the love for racing that it, it has to come within you know my my son who who uh Little Al, we mm-hmm. we he's he's a three, mm-hmm. okay to 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 the racing fraternity. He's a three, mm-hmm. and uh, and we started him racing go karts and stuff, and and started doing that. But he he felt the pressure; it kind of got to him, and so he you know was affected by by that outside noise or something. And, and, you know, I never heard it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would, I loved racing so much that that's all I wanted to do. It's all I thought about all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, with little Al, he, he, he lacked that last 10% of desire or love or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, that, that willing to just do anything it takes to, to win. And so it showed once he got, into the the indie lights and you know the, the the levels that he was clicking off it ended up showing and, and so yeah you're listening to the leaders and legends podcast we are with our guest two-time indianapolis 500 champion alunzer jr you mentioned michael andretti a few seconds ago mm-hmm. did you have a special friendship with him and and perhaps rivalry and let me throw another name into the mix, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Do you know him? And it would seem that the three of you would have a lot in common in more ways than one. We we, we do have a lot in common in in the aspect that that our dads were very successful and 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 uh, great race car drivers. Okay. Um, other than that, no, that's about all that we have in common. You know, um, with Dale Jr. Dale Jr.'s in NASCAR. His his family spent their time there so it's a whole different racing fraternity it's Mm -hmm. still a fraternity but it's it's separated um so we didn't race each other very much at all i i raced with dale jr a couple times in irock and that was about it you know um with with michael we were a bit closer because my dad and and uh, and mario were teammates in the early 70s and so there was some snowmobile trips uh, during the winter time, I want to that, see YouTube that, these snowmobile races. <laughs> we did. We actually raced when when we were kids. I mean, like like eight nine years old, and and even then, Michael outran me. Even then, he he outran. Did you me. root for him so. in a sense? I mean, you you won twice, ninety two and ninety four. 
and Michael famously never uh, one as a driver. Uh, but do you find yourself like going, he's whether it's Michael Andretti or someone else, throw someone else's name out there. This person is such a good guy. He's such a good race car driver. If I don't win, I want X to win. Yeah, I mean, you know, with with Michael, Michael was my direct contemporary, okay? I mean, we raced against each other all the time in in our careers. We had great races with each other. We respected each other out on the racetrack and and again, and that produced great races between us and and so um, you know, Really, the only reason why Michael didn't win the Indy 500 as a driver is because of the cart Indy car split, the 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 split that happened in the in '96 there for five years. That's the only reason why he didn't win a race. You know, my first victory in '92, Michael was gone. He had everybody covered. That's right. It was his race yeah. without a doubt. And then his car broke with with twelve to go, you know, and and so, but he was doing everything perfect, and and so, um, you know, I I enjoyed racing him. I, I uh, we we were friends to the point of only I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He lived in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Right. Okay, so so you know, when we weren't at the racetrack, we, we were we were two different lives. Totally, and, and so uh, are the Unzers but, the most famous people out of Albuquerque, New Mexico? Who's who else is in that? that I don't know. We, we we I'm trying to think who else who came out of Albuquerque and done good. Um, I don't know. Quite honestly, I don't know. Was I, it I fun to I be in really Albuquerque and just be one of the? Yeah, folks? I mean, we were just yeah, we were just one of the one of the the members of the community out there, and and it was. Uh, I I I loved Albuquerque. I still love Albuquerque today. Yeah. You mentioned your first race was 1983. I believe that's the year that Tom Sneva won mm-hmm. his only race. Mm-hmm. He barely won it, perhaps. No, he won it outright. But he, he won it outright. You played a role in that at the end, which got to be kind of famous. Please <laughs> take us 1982, which is I mentioned to you before we started recording that was my first race our family tickets we were we were right there when john cock uh shut down mirrors yeah, on his i pass. was i was here that day i was Beautiful watching it race. from the pits yeah but 83 was also a famous race your first one but tom sneva and allen's are senior mm-hmm. had a bit of a battle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you played a role in that Talk about that and what it was like for a for a son to be trying to help as best you can, if that's the word you want to use. Um, his father win the race. Yeah, well, um, you know, if you back it up a little bit, uh, dad and I were the first father-son to race against each other in the history of the 500. So we were the first father-son. And then as the race went on... Um, Dad had a, a had a great car that day, and so so him and and Sneva were running up front and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know what I was doing, so <laughs> so uh, I had a fast car, but I also had a right rear go flat on me out on the track and and extra pit stops and stuff. So I was I was a few laps down at near the end of the race, and we were under yellow. Dad was leading, Tom Sneva was second in line, and then I was third in line. But I was a few laps down, so I was like, I believe, in tenth place or something, mm-hmm. and uh, and so under that yellow, 
you know, I went, you know, if I could get between them and give dad a few laps that he could stretch out a lead that would, that, that, you know, he could win if, if I could get between them. And so, and that would have been his fourth and it would have been his third. It would have been his third. He won in 70 and 71. Did he win in 78? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. It would have been his fourth. Because his yeah, fourth came yeah, in 87. Yeah, yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep, yep. So it would have been his fourth. And, um, and so I went, okay, so I was, I was ready for the restart. And I was so ready for the restart that when the leaders took off, when Dad decided to take off, I took off. And I was in a lower gear or something and I, I i passed them both before we got into turn four so i came off at turn four the yellow lights are out you know and i'm leading both dad and and i didn't want to be leading dad i wanted to be behind him and cause cause uh sneva some grief you know for for a few laps and and so um the green comes out dad i think he passes me on the front straightaway because i kind of backed off a little bit to get between them and so i let dad go and then i got between them and then um the unthinkable happened that i didn't even think about and that was dad was fast all day long and all of a sudden he wasn't fast he didn't go anywhere and so so he was holding all of us up because he couldn't get through the corner as well as he had been during. He had a bad set of tires or something. And, sure. and so he didn't go. And so I, I didn't want to draft up on dad and pass him, you know, and cause him everything. So, so but I wanted to help him. And so at that point, I said, okay, I cannot draft him. And just go through the corner with him, and then if I get out from out from behind him, then I could run wide open down the straightaways and uh, and so on. And so that's what I did. <laughs> it looked, honest to God, it looked like I was blocking for my dad. And and uh, but but why wouldn't you? Well, because that's not the sportsman thing to do. I wasn't. I, I didn't want to block Sneva. I wanted to cause him grief. You know, I wanted to, to, I wanted to take away his air in the corners, and then I wanted to give him as much air as he possibly could on the straightaway. So what that entailed, if I drafted Dad and just backed off the gas, then that would give Tom two cars to draft off of instead of just one. So by getting out of line from my dad, Tom would only have me to draft off of. Mm-hmm. And so if he would have made a move to the inside or something, I would have let him go. But he had to earn the pass, in other words. And I think it bothered him that he's, he's got both father-son driving down the straightaways, you know, kind of halfway blocking the track. He's in a traffic jam. <laughs> and so I think he, he did, did get a little bit frustrated eventually because we came off turn four one time. And he he pushed the front end so bad because he was really trying to get a run on me mm-hmm. to, to to get on the inside of me. And he almost hit the wall coming off of the corner. 
he almost hit the wall and I went I saw it in my mirror and I went oh darn you know I was <laughs> that was close you know too bad he he he, he held it together you know <laughs> I mean I, I don't want any injuries or nothing sure. but but if he could just tap it and just bend his suspension a little bit that would have been great <laughs> and uh, what but, was it like talking to your dad or to Sneva after the race well, the way it turned out, the way it turned out is uh, dad just didn't go anywhere, you know, and, and Tom was able to finally get a run on me and get on the inside of me. And once he went that way, then I got out of the, I got out of there. You know, he had to earn it. He earned it. So now and within a lap, he passed dad like that, you know, and then and then as a lapse, I end up passing dad. So I, I, that's how my dad just had a bad set of tires. His car was off. And, and at the end of the race there, he was, he was slow. And so I ended up passing him, you know. And, and so uh, it all worked out the way that it was supposed to work out, I guess, you know. But, uh, but we definitely introduced the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to me. <laughs> and when you saw him after the race, I mean, disappointed that you didn't win. You're disappointed. You're mm -hmm. disappointed that he doesn't win. But was there a sense of like, well, we were both still here. We're both climbing out of our own car, having you finish the race. And yeah, it was a great experience for me. You know, um, really what happened at the end of the race, you know, uh, Tom Vimford, the chief steward, he calls me into his office. I tell dad, oh, Tom's called me in what why would he do that i don't know let you know he goes well i'm gonna go with you and so we go okay <laughs> dad comes with me why are you why are you asking my son to come in here and he goes i'm gonna penalize him for jumping the start and, and you were so, 21 years old I think. and so time. yeah i was 21 and and i'm gonna penalize him at the st for jumping the start and dad goes i missed a gear I missed a gear. I did, it wasn't his fault. I missed a gear. You can't penalize him. So dad was getting all in Tom Benford's face about, you can't penalize my son, you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, but he ended up penalizing me, and, but it did not change my, my finishing position. He ended up penalizing me, but it did not. I still finished 10th, even after the penalty. What's it like to go from Indianapolis and then run other races? I'm not going to assume that there's a letdown, but there just has to be kind of a different, like Indianapolis is so gigantic. How do you recalibrate your mind for not lesser races, but races where you don't necessarily have 400,000 people there and a million dollar uh, prize? Honest to God, to the driver, okay? Um, Indy, we used to practice for two full weeks, and then we 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 had that that week of of going dark so it was actually a three week ordeal okay and so our next event was milwaukee the very next weekend and so we would go up to milwaukee we would practice on friday qualify on saturday and race on sunday and so the drivers actually welcomed the smallness of the mm. event because you go, you practice, you qualify, you race, and then you go home. You know, you're not, you're not here for three weeks mm -hmm. and practicing every day and sponsors pulling you here and sponsors pulling you there and your engineer and worrying about the speed and all that, you know, I mean, it, because, because when it comes down to it, the Indy 500 is just another race. 
okay? But because it means so much, that does make it its own entity, okay? But the track itself it's, and, and the race itself is just a race. And so that's what you have to do. You have to execute, get your pit stops, call the yellow flags, your strategies, all that stuff is the same thing that we would do at Milwaukee the very next weekend. So, When you started a season, was your goal, or maybe even growing up when you're younger and trying to get into the business, was winning the Indianapolis 500 your goal or being the season-end champion your goal? Like if you could Both. choose one any year, if you had to choose one, which one would you choose? The Indy 500, without a doubt. But you still, you need to win races elsewhere to be a better driver at the Indy 500. And, and so, you know, as my childhood dream, the first was to qualify for the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. The second one was to race in the Indy 500. And then the third was to win the Indy 500. And so, you know, we were, we, we were able to do two of those in 1983, and then it took me 10 years to, to win it. I came close in 89. That's my with, next race I'm going to ask you about. <laughs> 1989, yeah. uh, you crashed in turn three while battling Emerson, Emerson. Fittipaldi yep. on the 199th lap. Yep, yeah. And then you did something that is more memorable perhaps than mo winning the race please talk about the end of the race and then your gesture of sportsmanship after Mm -hmm. you crash well um in all honesty in all the years that i ran the 500 89 was my best drive it was we were we as a team and me as a driver were better prepared for that race than I was in any of the other races, even my victories, you know. Um, I made very few mistakes. We had a fast race car. We didn't show it until the end, which, again, it leads to, you know, uh, the last lap is the one you want to lead. Right. And so it all fell into place except for a final yellow that happened that allowed Emerson to come in and get a splash and go and pull out in front of me, and I went, okay, now i got to race this guy. You know, because, because prior to that had, that, not had that yellow not come, we would have won it easily because we, we were saving fuel, and he had to make a pit stop, and I was like 20 seconds behind him. And, and just out of distance, of, of threatening dif- distance, you know, so they didn't even know we were there, basically, and mm-hmm. and we would have wanted it going away, but that yellow came out, so now i got to race him. We get through some traffic, and, and, and I ran him down and passed him and started pulling away from him. And um, so then we came up on lap traffic and going down the back stretch. He gets up beside me. We go into turn three, you know, um... We touch, I go into the wall, and, uh, and so I get out of the car. It's under yellow now, and that, when he came off a of four after we touched, when he came off a of four, he gets the white flag. So this race is finishing under yellow no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I get out of the car, and I take my helmet off, and, and I head out to the edge of the track, and I have one of the safety crew guys stand in front of me and block me, 
and asked me, where are you going? I go, I'm going out there. He goes, what, you want to flip him off? I went, yeah. <laughs> That's what NASCAR would have done. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so he steps aside and he goes, go right ahead. <laughs> just, That's such an ending story. <laughs> so, so I walk out there and it, it, there was just, there was a, a, a moment of clarity, a moment of silence among all these screaming people, mm-hmm. you know. And, Wanted to uh, see a battle to the finish. And- yeah, and, and it just, you know, Emerson's coming around to get the checkered. I mean, it's over. This thing's over. And, and, um, and I just thought about, um, all the years that I had been racing and the, and the sportsmanship and you just, you know, I, I, I had actually thought about there was a kid when dad and I were go-kart racing when I was super young and there was a kid out there that is, that he spun off the track or something. He gets out of his go-kart, takes off his helmet and slams the helmet in it in the, and dad looked at me and he goes, if I ever see you do that, you will not race. Okay, and I went. Oh, I don't know how this popped into my head, but it did. Mm-hmm. Knowing Emerson the way that I knew Emerson, uh, Emerson is is the last guy that would want to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, Emerson pulled Nicky Lauda out of the F one car when it was on fire and saved his life, risked his life to save. Mm-hmm. And that's what Emerson does. And Emerson, and so he's coming around to get the checkered. His first Indy 500, it would have been my first, but it's his. And, and I just went, you know, I just, I'm just going to congratulate him. So I clapped hands and gave thumbs up and congratulated him. On that. And then I got in the ambulance and started crying. Just fell apart. <laughs> just just fell apart. Oh, God love you. Emotionally, I believe it. you know, I just fell apart emotionally. But, but you know, it was over. What can you do? And then, and then, sitting in the hospital, we we get in the infield hospital, and about twenty minutes later or something like that, Dad comes in and he goes, "You can win this race." And I go, I look at him like, "What? What are you saying?" I can. He goes, "Because Tom Benford made a rule that year that you couldn't pass under the white line." You couldn't pass under the white line. And Emerson was clearly under the white line, <laughs> you know, because he just did a dive job on me. Sure. Just going into three. And, and because all he could think about was winning the Indy 500, all I could think about was winning the Indy 500. And so, you know, you got two cars going into a corner where only one's going to come out. And it's just racing. But Dad goes, you can win. And I, I looked at Dad. I go, Dad, he's drinking the milk right now. You know, he's in victory lane. I, I had never been, even in all my dad's victories, I had never been to victory lane. My sisters got to go in oh. 1978. Yeah. My sisters, when he won his third. When he won his third. I decided to ditch school that year. <laughs> and so I was grounded. <laughs> oh, you're kidding I, me. I was grounded. I was supposed to be at that race, but I was grounded. Man, I was in trouble, too. I was a Thank God he won that year because he would have, he would have came home and would you have had me. to file a protest in order to have the absolutely and you and you Abs- did or didn't did not I just looked at that I go Dad no plus you had the experience was it eighty one with the Bobby Unzer Mario Andretti flip yep, and that's and what re-flip. Dad was thinking that's what mm-hmm. you know Dad it's been proven that you can protest this race and and it can go either way 
you know, I mean, but it's not for months and thousands of dollars and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just went, no, he's drinking the milk. That's what I want to do, you know, and, and so, well, you sure? And I go, yeah, dad. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the good stuff. I was at my uncle's house in Greenfield watching the 1992 mm-hmm. Indianapolis 500. It was a great year for you. It was cold. He had a uh, one of those big, giant black satellites so he could pick okay. up a feed from another city. Okay, yep, yep. And I went out there and watched the race. It was in the 50s, at yeah, least. Yeah, it was cold. It was cold to stay in the history. Yeah. And I don't... Obviously, I'm a homer, so take this for what it's worth. Okay. There is nothing in sports more exhilarating than a close finish of the Indianapolis 500. Right, right. Gordon and Rick proved that. 1982, that's right. And yours is the closest? So far. So far, that's right. It'll fall one day. (laughs) It'll fall one day, but man, it's been a long run. (laughs) (laughs) Al Unzer Jr. won his first Indianapolis 500, beating Scott Goodyear by point zero four three of a second. Mm-hmm. It was actually closer because my time and device was in the nose of my car. His time and device was in the side pod of oh. his car. So it's actually if we if if they mandated it like they do today, mm-hmm. they mandate their time and devices to be in a specific. It's it's in the nose of their car. Every car today, but back then they didn't, so it's actually closer. <laughs> that is great. As a matter of fact, Valvoline came out with a, a, an advertising campaign during that summer, and they said, because we crossed the finish line, so I'm like running 225 miles an hour, 230, something like that. What is the distance in point oh four three of a second? at that speed and whoever can give the answer can get a free case of oil or something like that. <laughs> well, they figured it out and they used the photo mm-hmm. and the photo's not right to the actual time. The, the, the photo's off by about three or four feet. Really? Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't compute with the photo. <laughs> and I think you said earlier in, in the interview uh, that that was Michael Andretti's year yes that it he was. had the best uh, yeah he was, and i think i All remember that he was matter of fact it. there was one point he had a whole lap on the entire field we were all down a lap and dude you thinking when he went out like this andretti curse thing must there might be something to it no this is terrible no honestly what i thought because 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 scott goodyear and i were having such a good race the last 50 laps of the race that we were so equal that we couldn't pass each other on our own so it was lap traffic that would wreck our momentum that would allow the other guy to be able to pass. And so Scott, I was leading Scott. We, we, we go into a corner and lap traffic, and he gets me, and he passes me. And so then we run a few laps, and then he ran into some traffic, and I got by him. And within a lap, Michael Andretti's slowing down the backstretch. So it was just by sheer chance that I was leading the race. And when you found out he was out, yep. Michael Andretti was out, 
in your 10, 12 laps? This is for the win. Now, 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 now it gets thinking, serious. <laughs> there's no chance in hell this dude is going to pass me. Well, like, I mean, how I did just, that mentally go? We've been battling all day, yeah. even though Andretti's been running away with it. He's out of it. He's now right. I've got, I'm a couple of years away from the race I should have won. Now I'm in the lead. Yeah. Ain't going to be no more MO. Well, like, no, it's not happening again. No, what I was praying for was no lap traffic because that's what caused the 89 debacle was us coming up on lap traffic. So for the for the last 12 laps of the race, I was just praying, and I was looking. Every time I come off of turn two, mm-hmm. I'd look to the end of the straightaway, and every time it came off of turn four, I would look to the end of the straightaway just praying no cars. I don't want to see any cars. If that's the case, and my car holds in there mm-hmm. handling-wise, then we can win this. Then we can win this. And so, and how hard is it to be – disciplined when the tr- the laps are counting down and you're that much closer and maybe he's getting a little bigger in your mirror like how do you hold your training and your discipline and your mindset to be like just don't make any mistakes it's not about doing something special perhaps it's about remembering how to drive this car right. in this it's track just being about smooth and easy basically i mean we were wide open all the way around so all i needed to and what i did i just relaxed and just concentrated on what was in front of me and then just being smooth and then and then watching him run behind me okay so again the same old theory i want to take away the air in the corners and then i want to give him as much air on the straightaways as i can so so i started watching him run in my mirrors behind me in the Mm -hmm. corners. And so he was running just a little bit beneath me. So I would run a little bit lower. And so then that put him a little bit above me. And so then I moved up, ran a wider line through the corners. I tried to put my car in front of his going Mm -hmm. through the corners and then down the straightaways, I'm weaving back and forth to, 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 to give him the air Mm -hmm. as much as I can down the straightaways. Did you think, Oh man, if this is a 202-lap race, he's going to get me. If it was a 201, he would have got me because I had been trimming out my car mm-hmm. all day long. And on my last pit stop, I went a little too far on the rear wing, taking it out. So my last lap going into turn three, on the exit of three, the back end slid out on me. And it was the first time that it slid out on me on the 12 laps. And so when I turned into turn four, it jumped out on me and I had to blip the throttle. That one millisecond of blipping the throttle, that enabled Scott to get a massive run on me. Because I had been wide open the whole 12 Mm -hmm. laps, never lifting, just wide open. And I knew one little lift would just kill me. And... And it just coming for the checkered, that's that's what enabled him to get up beside me. And so had that happened a lap earlier, he would have passed me going into turn one and, and it would have been over. How soon after you drank the milk and got the reef, did you see your dad? And how soon after that did you see Scott Goodyear? Um, I saw dad pretty much as soon as the... 
the victory lane ceremonies were over with and and they take you and they put you in the pace car to take a victory lap and on our way out in the pace car on our way out there was dad and he had his hands were were, his arms were all open wide it was like the biggest hug i ever got all kinds of stuff like that and so um yeah it was it was and then it wasn't it wasn't i don't think i saw scott until the victory banquet the next night and you're looking at him looking at him going I know how you feel because it was just oh, a few yeah, years ago. He, yeah, he knew how he knew what it felt like, but uh, yeah, it was yeah. pretty. Clear. He, he's a good guy, Scott Goodyear. As a matter of fact, what's actually happened because it's the closest finish in the history, and it's stayed that way for the last twenty-five years or whatever, how many years it's been. It's actually put Scott Goodyear and I as good friends now because. We do so many things based on that that uh, finish. Oh, sure, that would yeah. make perfect sense. Yeah. It's a great yeah. marketing tool. It is, and and uh, yeah, and we we uh, we become good friends. Yeah. Mentioned your uncles and your sisters, and obviously your your dad. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention someone else who had a little uh, stake in this game, mm-hmm. and that's your mom. Yeah, yeah. How did she handle her husband and her son and all the the dangers and the exhilaration of being in the racing world. Honestly, my my personal opinion is she just didn't think about it. She she wouldn't think about it. Of course, she loves racing, okay? And and but she I don't think she she wanted to think about the danger side of it and and then when it did come, you know, I I crashed in Michigan one day real bad in 1984 and and pull ligaments in my knee and and my ankle and and i remember going back home to albuquerque and mom was watching it of course in in albuquerque and she came over the house i'm so happy you're okay and all crying and stuff you know i'm going mom i'm okay okay just hey you know this is racing and she goes i know but i worry about you so much it's so you know, I was I was really fortunate that I didn't have any real big accidents in my career mm-hmm. that 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 kept me in the hospital for any length of time. My dad didn't either. I was just going to make okay. that point. Neither one of you did. Right. My dad didn't either. And, and so mom mom was was, you know, um, of course, she worried. She's she's she loves her children and she's a mom. And but uh, she also loves racing, too. And she had a great time she used to sell my merchandise my t-shirts and all that kind of stuff and really she was she was the head of my fan club and <laughs> literally and figuratively. literally and figuratively <laughs> yeah yeah she, she just loved and she loves the fans and she loves talking to them and and you know she's she's my mom so she just loves it that actually add put me right to my next question before we get to your uh victory in 1994 you're listening to the leaders and legends podcast our guest is two-time indianapolis 500 champion al unzer jr it was pretty clear earlier in your career especially as you became a serious contender for the race every year that indianapolis loves al unzer jr is that something you felt something you enjoyed the popularity that you had with the Indianapolis 500 fan base and the city? Um, 
yeah, I, you know, I, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. You know, I, I was, I was the guy that, uh, you know, went through the airports because I, you know, we, we travel so much through mm-hmm. the, through the season and stuff. I went through the airports, you know, with, with my head down, going, going through, you know, the airport, not wanting to be recognized. Okay. Uh, my dad and my uncle Bobby, they had their names on their briefcases. Okay. They, <laughs> they wanted everybody to know that they were walking through the airport. And, and, and I don't know, maybe it's because they're, they became famous in their adult life. And with me, you know, I used to get, I, I used to get beat up at school because I was famous. Okay. And, and so on. And so, you know, I I really didn't, you know, I didn't like the popularity out mm-hmm. and about. And so, you know, I was always cordial to anybody come up and ask me for my autograph, no matter if I'm eating or not. I, you know, it, it's it's an honor sure. to be asked. OK. And so, um, no, I was I was the quiet guy. I, you know, I, I kind of stayed home. I didn't uh, I didn't go out very much and that sort of thing. So you. You obviously had the greatest racing idol you could possibly have, and your father, and I'm sure your uncle Bobby is one A. Mm-hmm. Was there another race driver from your previous generation's um, career that you looked up to, or just thought, "Man, that guy can drive a car"? Absolutely, Mario, Mario Andretti. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was because we. I knew him when I was a kid and we'd went snowmobiling and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but my dad, okay. So I never got to race against my uncle Bobby. My uncle Bobby retired in 82. Okay. And so terrific TV commentator. And absolutely. And, and so his last full season was 81. Okay. And then dad, dad ran 83, 84 and 85. And that was his last year as a full-time driver he would come back and run the indy 500 after that but but 85 was his last full season and so with with my two major idols that to learn from that i know would tell me the truth and all that kind of stuff with them out of the picture it became mario and so you know i and mario was super quick super competitive still still going you know really fast and winning races and and all that and so um yeah i concentrated him and the only way i could concentrate on him was by following him in practice Mm. that was you know because he's he's a competitor he's not a family member okay he's a competitor (laughs) so i can't between practice sessions i can't walk up to mario and go mario what springs are you running on your car and and mario how do i get through this corner because he'd tell me (laughs) right you know (laughs) so uh because he's a competitor, so so he's gonna he's gonna give me all the wrong advice. Okay, <laughs> so, so I couldn't walk up and do, so the only way I could learn from him was by and I did I concentrated on on Mario huge, and then it was whoever was quick that weekend because there were so many great race car drivers in the late eighties and early nineties, you know, Emerson, Nigel Mansell, Rick Mears, mm. you know these guys were just 
Bobby Ray Hall. Ray Hall, I was just going to say. You know, Michael. I mean, just, and and so whatever given weekend, who's ever running the quickest, that's who I'd try to concentrate on during during the practice and so on. Were you conscious of the fact that there were so many great drivers? I mean, you can say it's the golden era of, mm-hmm. of racing. Where was. you have 60s, 70s, 80s, and then kind of early to mid 90s was just... 35 years of excellence year after year with all these amazing drivers, hall of fame drivers. It was, you know, the popularity really went through the roof because ESPN came online Mm -hmm. in what? 1980. Late 70s, but really started taking off with the racing, with Mm -hmm. the auto racing is, you know, before that it was wide world of sports on occasion. They'd have a couple races outside the Indy 500, during the summer but once espn came online and and really started pushing the racing then then it was uh it it was that era that really gained the popularity and and so then you know 10 years down the road the early 90s was was its peak 1994 you get to turn the tables on emerson fittipaldi yeah yeah, how did that feel when you win your second indianapolis (laughs) 500 and he doesn't well Again, it was one of those one of those things. Uh, we were fast. We were we were we were running second all day long, and and Emerson, but Emerson was, you know, quicker than I was. And as the race went on near the end of the race, he's almost a lap in front of me, and um, and then you know he he was trying hard to pass me, and and he actually got it done with lap traffic mm-hmm. again that lap traffic he actually passed me but then but then we caught more lap traffic and that wrecked his momentum so i even passed him on the outside going into turn three and got it back and i get and i didn't know this but they were really pushing him hard to pass me and so he just tried too hard in turn four and and ended up the car jumped sideways on him and he corrected and went up and hit the wall and i saw it in my mirror that mm. he hit the wall and i went oh because you were a lap down when he passed you so i mean yeah he was trying he was, was trying to put me a lap down yeah because i had already made my final stop so with with the pete the the pit speed limit and all that it's about one full lap if for for if you come in the pits and the racetrack is green it's about one full lap that you're going to lose time-wise. So he was right there, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, and I saw him crash in turn four, and I'm like, oh, thank God, you know? And he's okay. your teammate, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he's my Propinski. teammate. Yeah, yeah, dude. <laughs> wow, this is so cool because now I'm going to win, you know? And yay! And, and, uh, and then really it was it – was, during the pace lap afterwards, the the pace car mm-hmm. dad's with me now in because mm-hmm. he retired that year, so he's in street clothes. So he gets he he's rides with me around on the pace car, and we get over to turn four, and I said that's where Emerson hits. That's where Emerson hit, mm-hmm. and Dad looked at me and he goes, "Hey, it comes back around. It that's always right. comes back around." And that's and, and I was went. was Fittipaldi as. I know he didn't come out on the track, but was he as gracious oh, about yeah. that? Oh, yeah. It, it, you know, he crashed on his own, so it was, it was his own fault. And so, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> uh, the last question I want to ask you before we get to the uh, five questions that we end all of our podcast with. Um, okay. I'm going to paraphrase Walter Matthau, the, the famous actor, 
where he he basically after after an actress and I forget her name received an Academy Award, Mathau famously said, "Well, now you know how you'll be described in your obituary." Academy Award winner X died. Right. right. Were you conscious of now? I'm going to be a Hall of Famer. This is how I'm going to be described for the rest of my life, including on the Leaders and Legends podcast, which you may not have been mm-hmm. thinking of at the time, I get. <laughs> but two-time Indianapolis 500 champion, Alonzer Jr., that's the lead to your life in a lot of ways. Am I off base on that, or is it something you think about? No, I, I, I don't really think about it, okay? Um, I saw it happen with my father and my uncle, you know? Um, that is what winning the Indy 500 does to your name is you become, you know, an Indy 500 winner, no matter how many times, just an Indy 500 winner, you know, for the rest of your life. And, and, uh, and that's, that's one of the things that winning here does, does to you and, and, and your family. So. AJ Foyt famously said, "Indianapolis is what made my career." It, that's right, and no, and no one would know who AJ Foyt or Al Unser or Bobby Unser or Mario Andretti or Al Junior if they didn't win the Indy Five Hundred. So, about a year ago, we had a three-time winner. Johnny Rutherford yep. on the Leaders and yep. Legends yep. podcast. I asked him Great this question. Guy. Yes, Great. he was very kind. It was a terrific interview too. What's more frustrating for you, or which would you rather do? Get out on the Indianapolis 500 track right now at your age and try to run 200 miles an hour against some of the best drivers in the world? Or be on I-465 driving around with a bunch of Hoosiers as they're trying to get home from work? How did you handle being on the actual interstate in your own car dealing with people like me? <laughs> um. Today, at my age, I'd rather be on 465, okay? <laughs> but back when I was in my 20s and 30s and I was actually racing out here, I'd rather be on the racetrack because I know who I'm driving mm-hmm. next to. Out on 465, you don't know what kind of day anybody's having or how many <laughs> beers they've had or what have you. And so um, – but no, today I'd, I'd, I'd rather be just uh, hanging out. Yeah. We have come to the <laughs> point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all our guests. Are you ready, Mr. Allen or Junior? You Jr.? betcha. What was your first job? My first job, I was a machinist in a machine shop in Albuquerque. What was your first concert? First concert was uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. Who? Jerry Jeff Walker. Forgive me, I shouldn't have just said who, but I don't know. Yeah, um, it was kind of like a, 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 a rock and roll country band back in New Mexico. But once you started winning Indy 500s, did you go to better concerts? And I get did. Special tickets? I did. And- yeah, 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 we did. We did, yeah. Because there's a lot of rock. We yeah. were talking about Eddie Van Halen and Sammy Hagar before we yeah. started the podcast. I never but- got to see one of their concerts. But there are a lot of rock stars who are huge car and racing fans. Yeah, I got to, at Cleveland one day after the race at Cleveland. Journey was playing down in uh, downtown Cleveland, and, and I went to that concert after the race and ended up playing the cowbell on stage with them. 
That was the fun days. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Uh, the Shack. The Shack. Which book is that? Um, it tells a story about a a, a man and, and meeting up with uh, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Terrific. The Shack. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Ooh, which event would I choose? The Indy 500. Maybe see your dad win the one that you got grounded? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Who would I choose? Um, I would choose Anthony Hopkins. That's a great, of course, That's he is a cannibal. Are you sure? Yes, yes. Here's a bo- he's, he's done a lot of others. So he's- <laughs> Here's a bonus six question, which has never been asked on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh-oh, okay. How absolutely amazing is Norma Lawrence? Fantastic. Unbelievably amazing. She's an absolute yeah. sweetheart, and our friend Norma Lawrence is why Chris Spangle and I are here sitting with you for this podcast. We've asked Al Unzer Jr. our five questions, but we have one more for him. Al, what are you up to these days? Uh, well, thanks for asking, Robert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're doing quite a lot of things. I'm, I'm actually with a, a brand new race team uh, called Future Star Racing, uh, owned by Mark McAllister. And, uh, and what it is, it's an SCCA Formula 4 and a uh, formula three, which is, they, they call it FR um, in, in SCCA. And so basically it's the first step after go-karts. So we, we okay. bring young kids in. Um, our driver of our, our F4 car is Chloe Chambers. She's 16 years old, a wonderful little girl that, that, that gets out there and just drives her heart out in our, in our FR car. Ernie Francis Jr. is our driver, and he's already won a race this season in, in, that, uh, in that car. And then at the same time, we started, uh, Mark McAllister started the, the Wings and Wheels Foundation, which is uh, raising money to help kids, uh, young adults uh, that, that, uh, that have all the talent. They, they have everything except the funding to go forward uh it is part of a diversity thing too so uh but mainly it's just to uh to help these young adults in in all aspects of racing not just uh driving cars but working on them mechanic them um uh doing stuff with 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 marketing uh social media everything that 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 what racing entails and so um yeah, we, we started that foundation, and, and uh, so that was Mark's vision, is to give back um, and, and give these young kids an opportunity that, uh, that they may not have. And so, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing today, and I, I truly love it. I get to pass on what was passed on to me by, by my father and, and so on. So, so yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. So racing just at every level for the final question, <laughs> racing at every level with 
with every demographic, that's what that's what turns you on. That's what gets your uh, blood flowing, doesn't it? Absolutely, especially working with these young adults, because I can suggest something for them to go out and and try, and when they come back and they go, "Al, oh, I tried it and it worked. It was great." And and when when they light up like that, um, I it just <laughs> it's a win for me. I just light up too. So, Alanzer Jr., you've been a terrific guest. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.